Hey, how's it going, universe? Welcome to another episode of Zoobox Goes to the Movies. We're back. We're back. We took October off the whole month. I said, fuck it. People don't want to be on this show. I don't want to be on this show with people. Fuck them. No, it just <laughs> ended up working out that way. <laughs> and there's plenty of movie material on our YouTube channel. I mean, granted, they're not as awesome as these, but, you know. But people got to have lives, you know. Dan Prophet's got to be a busy person that works for himself like a maniac, you know. Paul's got a family. I don't know what his excuse is, really. He's just a bad person. But uh... <laughs> But anyways, how you been, buddy? Uh, not too shabby, man. Not too shabby. Just live a good, genteel life. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, to, to kick everything off, we decided, like, oh, Kubrick boys reunite. That's we have right. to just we need to come back to the Kubrick fold. Today we're going to be talking about 1975's Barry Lyndon, kind of the the uh, the redheaded stepchild, no pun intended, of of Kubrick's. Right? Like you don't really hear people talk about Barry Lyndon very often. It's just not something that ever comes up when you say like, "Oh, I really like Stanley Kubrick." Oh, you love Barry Lyndon? Not often. Yeah. At least not in my experience. No, no, you're absolutely right. And since we started doing these uh, Kubrick reviews, when we started talking about uh, when we're wrapping up a uh, Clockwork Orange, I was just like, what, Barry, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> what am I do? So I wrote down, like, Barry Lyndon, read it. I'm like, okay. And I just made the note. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, that's your point. Yeah. I mean, I bought it. I bought this, this Blu ray. I bought this 10 years oh. ago, watched it once, and sat on the shelf. I just, like, I think I just forgot it existed. Uh, Because, you know, when I go to Kubrick, I think of 2001, Dr. Strangelove, pretty much like all the movies we've talked about so far. Like, those are the ones that I go to, right? Um, So it was definitely interesting coming back to Barry Lyndon. Paul and I are kind of going to be on even playing field with this one because it's uh, one I've only seen literally twice. The last time I saw it was 10 years ago. So, Uh, But we both, we read the book, uh, which is either The Luck of Barry Lyndon or The Memoirs of Barry Lyndon or Just Barry Lyndon, depending on which version of it you find. Uh, it's written by what um, William Mac- Makepeace Thackeray, who's most famous for actually Vanity Fair, which was another. He's like a social satirist of his era. Wrote a lot of these kind of Victorian era type novels that dealt with like you know upper crust society and the ways people would live their lives like that. You know, um, so this movie, like I said, directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick. It stars Ryan O'Neill, Marissa Brenson. Patrick McGee, Hardy Kruger, Stephen Burkhoff, Marie Keene, Diana Corner, Ray Melvin, and others. The logline plot synopsis is an Irish rogue wins the heart of a rich widow and assumes her dead husband's aristocratic position in the 18th century England. Wow. Or, <laughs> no, or dude tries to bang his cousin. Life goes hysterically wrong throughout the process. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so... Actually, before we do that, I know Paul tried to get told me specifically what whiskey he wanted me to buy. Oh like, shit! And I couldn't find it. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. So what are you sporting tonight, then, good friend? All right, I got what I got for this podcast. I got Clada. Okay. Ah. Now this actually had pretty good reviews. Uh, I it was on it was it was weirdly enough it was on clearance, but I looked it up online. It usually goes about forty bucks. I came in this nice green bag. Mm-hmm. Um, it's reference to the Clotta Ring. If you're familiar yep. with that, yep. I have not tasted it yet. <laughs> so we'll see. Forty-six percent. Yeah, you gotta, gotta be careful. 
got to be careful. Hey, taste notes with it? Or I guess you're just going to give it to me raw. You're going to do it live. You're going to do I'll, it live. I'll taste do it, it live. First. I'll do it live. All right. So, yeah, anyways. So what did you think of the book? Let's talk about the book a little bit to start this off. Um, I expected, my me personally, uh, before I let you answer the question, I asked you. <laughs> um, I personally th- was expecting something very dry and stuffy. And I uh, was pleasantly surprised. And then I was like, oh, this is dry and stuffy. And then pleasantly surprised again. <laughs> uh, I kind of had peaks and valleys with the book. The middle of the book was a little rough. Because uh, I am so detached from that culture. 100%, 100%. And was it the book was like written 150 years before the movie was filmed? 1840s, the 1840s, I believe. And uh, it was actually originally released in like chapters. It came out in like a magazine and then collected together. Because um, that was yeah. kind of his uh, William uh, Makepeace Thackeray's thing. He was kind of like a journalist. Right. And then actually, I read up a little bit about him. He had to, just to support his family, he started writing fiction. Because he was already a writer. He was a poor journalist. And he needed to make more money. So he's like, shit, I'll do these. What's the case with like all these famous works or people uh, that they make all their fame, all their fame, notoriety, and then, you know, the uh, estate gets the money like after they die. You know, it's kind yeah, of, yeah. Yeah, kind of sad. Was it like I just found that out about that uh, HP Lovecraft because we just finished that HBO show. And uh, we talk about that, talk about that experience like on another time. But I just remember like reading into him a bit as I was watching that series, and it was just the, the same thing. Like died in poverty, and he was mm-hmm. doing uh, like those little uh, Lovecraft like stories uh, through various different you know comics and all those other press releases. Yeah, Edgar Edgar Allan Poe the same way died penniless, yep. drunk yep. in a ditch. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Poe really famous around these parts. That's you know, true. Famous. That's right. Uh, you know, a Deer Park Tavern down the road for me. He oh. cursed that, cursed that place. Yeah, but no, the book. Um, surprisingly, um, is just a. Uh, I I really did enjoy. It. Uh, I'm right there with you around uh, the middle. Kind of like when he goes uh, with the uh, the German monks a bit. It's kind of like when I lost me a little bit, but then he starts like picking back up. Um, but uh, it. it really got right into it uh the book like his journey just starting off and just yeah into it. Uh, i think overall it was it was fun i think the uh my favorite part uh the experience about the book just in general was uh you know his narration himself like just reflecting and still like, like oh yeah and completely just off, like still doesn't even get the point you know no like, there's it, no like demon factor about uh, Redmond Barry. <laughs> it's a great quality of the book that is uh, that they completely changed tact within the movie. But the book, he's a, he's an unreliable narrator. Like they give you a few cues like early on, like oh this guy, you can't believe anything this dude says. Like <laughs> about how he describes the situations, right? Right. The he can't do anything he says, and then he does like, and then he so openly. It's been, it's been like it's been a mixture, of, like you know. Uh, uh, not want to make it a history book or, um, uh, you know, or just being lazy or I don't know, but I, I don't know if like um, Thatchery, if that was his uh, like intention, but I like 
it seems like when he references the seven wars, a uh, seven years war, and he's like, you know, there's like too many great historians, but I would have to explain to you the complexities um, uh, of like uh, the seven year war, so I won't, but it was, you know, <laughs> just like that. But then he'll go into like deep detail of like, you know, killing several officers and like, you know, one <laughs> of it like in a ditch and then stealing like his purse. And you said it was, you know, and the remnants of his purse, there's like 14 dinars in there that was very agreeable with me. <laughs> it's like, that's right. He is a scoundrel. He is a scoundrel. So, well, he is. But, he, and, and that's the thing. It's like, it's a comedy of errors. And like, because the book I found much more openly funny. The movie's funny if you're paying attention, because the movie's not like tipping a tap that you're supposed to be laughing. But like the book is much more like overtly comical because of how ridiculous Redmond Barry is, Barry Lyndon. Like he's such a cad, like you said, he's such a scoundrel. And you can't help like kind of just laugh at the audacious nature of it and how upfront he is about the fact that he's kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> he's like the he's schemer. Straight up psychopath. Uh just does not care and whatever uh element he's in, like he adapts and he like will go to it. And so uh, you know, I mean, there's a there, there's a lot of bits out there about this talking about you know it dives into you know, the human condition and blah blah, and then uh, well, well, I, I, it does, but I it kind of gets into like you know uh, you know the film and the book, right? I mean, uh, Kubrick, uh, in my opinion, he two thousand one this uh, the story, you know, like he just went off, he took the framework of that, and it was just well, very think, cold. I, yeah, I think when you take the first person subjective of the book and then you turn that into like an objective mm. narrative, a, a, like an abstract narrative, or like, because there is a narrator. There's actually a narrator. When I was watching it, I was like, this feels like I'm watching like a nature documentary. Yeah, I, that's literally what I have on here. Cause I, uh, so you're half, uh, half of you and ahead of me. So I watched it once for the first time um, last week. And then I watched about half of it, like uh, again, bits, bits, this big. And the reason why I rewatched it again, because uh, I was just reflecting on it, I was just like, this sounds like some like Nat Geo thing where everything's, you have the narrator like coldly talking about the situation, like you are observing, like, you know, some, um, you know, primitive like creatures out there. And that yeah. was kind of like the concept, right? Because they're supposed to be, you know, high society, everything's, I'm a genteel, you know, uh, 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 genteel rights, and blah, blah. And they just kind of go through, constantly trying to make you know like barbaric things like a duel or like uh you know going to war marching in there it's just like slow monotonous and then well this is zooming in, zooming in and out constantly in like all these areas like uh like they would like zooming in on a in and out on a lion or whatever animal yeah out in the, so like it definitely i definitely got that vibe too like a Nat yeah. Geo. Like, man, yeah because, I, because it is like you know it is something that is about the human condition specifically for these kinds of people because I think one of the big themes, and it's more in the movie than it is in the book, but I cause I think it's in the book as well, is this idea of like a repressed emotion. Nobody, mm-hmm. everything has to be through this veil of bullshit civility that nobody actually believes. Like even when they anger each other, they're like, You have cheated me, sir. I don't like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and then the guy's just like, I didn't cheat you. I'll be, you'll be talking to my lawyer. Like, that's like, you know, that's, that's as intense as it gets Mm. in a lot of the, in a lot of the moments in these people's lives. And it's only these few times, like even, uh, you know, towards the end of the book, uh, what's, oh, what's her name? 
Well, who's who does Barry Lyndon marry? Shit. Drawn a blank. What's her name? Uh, Mary, Mariana Lyndon. Is that, no, uh, Honoria, Honoria, Lady Lyndon from the second half of the story. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, her fucking kid dies and she barely fucking moves. Like, she's a statue. And that's mm-hmm. like how you see everybody. And the only, in the time that Barry Lyndon actually acts out, like, he lets the facade drop uh, when he attacks uh, young Lord Bullingdon, mm-hmm. everybody turns their back on him. Because you're like, because he was too improper. He was rude. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But uh, anyways, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there. But yeah, no, I agree with you, I, though. Uh, but, but did you not, because when you said that about like the human nature thing, do you think that it does speak to some sort of deeper level of human nature? Or do you think that's well, kind of reading too much into it? No, I, well, I think he's definitely, um, and just like, you know, watching it, I think he's definitely focuses uh, us on to on the theory of like you know fate and like you know and probably like with the you know Nietzsche's recurrence thing, I think there's a little bit of that in there too. Like we're going to be where we're going to be. Hit you know Barry uh, Redmond Barry's dad died in a duel, and then um, like you know his fate ended up being mm-hmm. like through you know through a duel. Um, you know luck, you know good luck got him where he needed to be, and then it also took everything away, and it's going to continue to happen. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely I think it definitely focuses you on that uh, on that aspect. But I think. Because like when I say like he 2001 did, uh, Arthur's uh, 2001 novel, like you knew where it was going uh, with it. There's a lot more detail and it was about, you know, uh, well, basically like being abducted and the end of that. But he just kind of took that framework and just kind of put you in inside with like some concepts, some ideas. And then you just with that co- accompanied with like uh, all the, you know, uh, the visuals throughout that experience, like you're left focusing on. Those things that are just subtly in your face and you reflect on it, then you think it's blatantly in your face, but not in the moment as you're watching. I think with like Barry Lyndon, you're kind of looking into, um, you know, those uh, the concept of fate in a very cold, stoic manner, and, and like you're so like consumed with like the aesthetics of everything. Yeah, so, like there's so many, so many good stills. But I, uh, but I like, think I, I think that speaks to the the notion that like it is about appearances. Like even in the design of the movie, the meticulous design of the cinematography. Like, cause he's, you know, a lot of those, some of those shots are direct recreations of 18th century paintings. Right. Like it's, and some of those paintings are literally in the movie that they recreate, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, but like, because that's the whole thing. It's about formality. And even the movie, the only time the movie ever lets go of that formality is during these intense moments of violence or the, like when, when, so when Barry Lyndon fights one of his, uh, his co-soldiers, one of his one of the guys, like when they have that fist fight about the uh, about the cup, the greasy cup. Yeah, it the movie goes no, but the movie goes handheld for like forty five seconds. Yeah, when, uh, it when it's like beating the shit out of uh, you know stepson. Yeah, um, it's it goes handheld, and those are the only moments in the movie where that happens. Right, everything else is very long, laborious, kind of slow shots. It is a. It is a uh, what would I say? <laughs> it's a I wouldn't say it's a slow moving movie. I think it's like methodically paced. It's kind of hypnotic. It's kind of weird. Like I was really kind of just kind of drawn into it. I never felt really bored when I watched the movie. Did you ever feel? Did you ever feel like like start checking the? You didn't feel bored, and uh, 
but it's just like a lot of things, right? Too. It's um, I don't want to say it's like a mood piece, but you gotta be, you have to want to watch that. So. Yes, yes, one hundred percent, one hundred. If you're not like in the frame of mind of what you're about to see, like you know, because we did, we you know when we watch it, we're watching with intention, the intention to talk about it. So maybe we're gonna invest a little bit more. We're gonna talk about it. We read the book, so we're gonna get a little bit more out of it. You're kind of intellectually right. cycling through things. You popped it in just based off the name. It's one of the Kubrick films, and then you know. No, I think I, I think I totally fell asleep when I was like uh, 23 watching. <laughs> I was probably like, oh, yeah, I'm a serious cinephile, you know, sitting here on my couch alone at two in the morning. And probably I guarantee you I fell asleep at some point because uh, I didn't there was I barely remembered anything about it. Like it was felt like this time watching it felt like the first time I ever watched it. So that's fair. That's fair. Uh, speaking of getting ahead of ourselves, man, what's it taste like? It's kind of got like a caramelly flavor to it. Okay. Reminds me a little bit of like a, a Bushmills flavor. It's very smooth though. Has a little bit of a, a little bit too strong of like a alcohol or ethanol like aftertaste. It lingers for a little bit too long. Um, I did I detect notes of bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. What does it say? No, they just talking about the fucking clottering. That's what you give to your husband when you get married. Give him clotterings. Irish gays, that's what they do. They give their husband clotterings. Oh, man. I'm drinking the quiet man. Ah, see, I think I have. I think that's at the other liquor store. I think I have seen that before. So this one is... Oh, it's the second one I'm going through uh, this month. The second um, one? The second jug yeah. of the quiet yeah. man? Ironically enough, it makes you not quiet. <laughs> Shit. No, I'm just well, I was going with a genteel man of my stature to drink, and I was just like, you know, a Dude, quiet man. You you don't know, disrupt I, the atmosphere. We stay alive. So I thought about this. I was like, let's get this. And then I thought we were going to do this a couple weeks ago, and then you know, things happened. And so then I finished it. And so I'm like, well, I got to get it again because this happened to me with the Mormon juice, uh, the High West uh, Double Rack. Yeah. Where you know, a guy for the detective talking <laughs> chair, I'm like, shit, it's gone. I told him to get it. So I had to go get it again. So that's what happened here. So, <laughs> I, it, but it's a it's a solid bottle. It's a solid bottle. So I went on a, a scotch okay, for most of the month and just kind of switched yeah, back over yeah, to Yeah, you got me into scotch a little bit. I, I was not, I did not drink scotch forever. I was mostly like bourbon or like Jameson. That's like kind of like uh, as crazy as I got. But lately, mm-hmm. since since we've been doing this together, I have definitely gotten more adventurous. And I will say this. This is not bad. It's not yeah. bad. If you are a fan of like two gingers, Bushmills, that strain of Irish whiskey, this is a little bit harsher. So obviously it's a little darker. Uh, if you ever seen two gingers, it looks like somebody peed in a like somebody that was like fairly well hydrated peed in a bottle. Um, but I, well, I guess that's it's a little lighter well, than Jameson. Darker year and is does not suggest that you're hydrated. Two gingers is like. <laughs> well, no, what I'm saying is somebody. Listen, an Irish person peed in that bottle. You're not going <laughs> to convince me otherwise. I've already I've said it. I've decreed it. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I was actually because we have a bunch of like makeup because it's Halloween in the house. Yeah. 
I almost uh, put white makeup all over my face and give myself a dot and put lipstick on. <laughs> but you know, say Levy next time. You know, and then I had to do. You know, I'm. The, you know, I had to. You know, I had to hold down the fort, produce an episode of regular Zoo Box. No time for fun and games. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, uh, so going back. What did you think of Barry Lyndon? Yeah, we didn't even say. Like, what was, what is your, how did you generally feel about the movie? We talked about the book a little bit, and then we'll probably get into some comparing and contrasting. But what did you actually just think about the movie in general? Um, it, uh, well, it wasn't 2001. Um, I, I think, I think I enjoyed it. Um, I think I really appreciated, you know, the standard things, uh, that we've come to appreciate with, uh, Kubrick in general, the great amount of detail. Uh, and things like that. Um, uh, I uh, I just I think I think overall it was solid. I think it was like a beautiful film like got to watch. But yeah. uh, it's definitely doesn't definitely has not been my favorite one since we've been doing this. I would say it is a technical masterpiece. It's technically a masterpiece. Uh, but and I think a lot of it works for me on a deeper level in a vacuum. Certain scenes. Mm. But even having read the book, and this is actually a pretty, pretty faithful adaption of the book adaptation, uh, actually. But just removing that first-person perspective completely changes it. Like it does feel like a different story, even though the story is the same, because uh, you really don't. Right, but the story in the book is a lot more out of control than it is here. Oh no, one hundred percent. No, because they yeah. cut. I mean, obviously they cut like a lot of stuff. Out. But all I, the major beats. Long. What's that? They cut out a ton of shit, and it was still three hours long. <laughs> well, it's because it took fucking five minutes to pan to the right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. I mean, I think all of that stuff is intentional, like the the slow panning. Because uh, I was, I actually watched a little bit of a, I cheated a little bit. I watched a deconstruction video of like the visual deconstruction of Barry Lyndon, because Barry Lyndon was kind of a forgotten Kubrick movie for a while, in the sense that it just didn't immediately occur to people to talk about Barry Lyndon when they talked about Kubrick, like we had said earlier. But it has been uh, kind of critically reassessed in the past five or six years. So now there's like a lot of like people our age, movie nerds, that are kind of finding it, deconstructing it kind of really appreciating it for the technical side of things. Um, well, I was thinking, like, what else was coming out in 1975? Movies of 1975. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Why not? We're here. Like that, that was a year of a lot of blockbusters. Oh, do you know the answer to this? Um, actually, no. <laughs> okay. Well, we got some movies. Okay, this is what... These are some of the popular things that came out in 1975. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh. One but that wasn't the blockbuster after that. That was more like Cult Fallen. No, yeah, I know. Don't get sassy with me, buddy. Uh, I'm just saying <laughs> things that could have, like, you know, drowned <gasps> this. Like, well, yeah, like classic, you know, classic movie. Came out in between, like, you know, uh, Robocop and uh, what was the other movie? <laughs> Right, and everyone forgot about that masterpiece because it was, you know, so many blockbusters happened. Yeah, like, UH, UHF got robbed, is what Paul's totally. saying. Totally, totally, dude. Hey, wait now, I got you, baby. I, I got, got you back, buddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hit me up. Rock you um, rock. Well, okay. Uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Actually, one of oh. our favorites. 
Yeah. That's a favorite of mine. Actually, that would be a good one to do someday. Uh, thinking about it. In between. In between. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon came out that year. <laughs> yeah. It's another great flick. Jaws came out that year. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jaws, like, you know, people put Jaws, like, up on a shelf. It's like Citizen Kane. They're like, oh, it's a masterpiece. Everybody knows that. Like, it's like this thing that people don't interact with anymore. But if you watch Jaws, dude, like, Jaws is like a near fucking perfect perfectly paced movie like jaws is a fucking great movie and i think uh it doesn't get the respect because it's like and it, people look at it like it's um, like this antique masterpiece you're like yeah it's that way for a reason dude anyways <laughs> rant over uh the sequel to true grit rooster cogburn came out that year which i've never seen the stepford wives came out that year <gasps> dolomite came out that year I've, I've never seen. I'm not even gonna pretend. I'm not gonna pretend like oh, I'm a I'm a cool film guy. I've seen Dolomite. Of course, I love Dolomite. It's so funny. It's so ironically funny. I've never seen. Uh, the Return of the Pink Panther. Little Peter Sellers connection there. Boom. The Wind and the Lion. The French Connection too. <laughs> so, oh, of course. Anyway, so those so there was a few there was a few big movies. I mean. Barry Lyndon did pretty good at the Academy Awards. It won three, like, basically technical Academy Awards. Best score, best cinematography, and then I think best production design. It got nominated for best picture and best director, but lost. Yeah, but I, I don't think that's a good measuring stick for, like, you know, how, for, you know, something being popular. Or, um, no, it's, it's, it's not, it was not culturally impactful at all. Right. It just wasn't. It, honestly, well, like, if people are right, now. What's that? Oh, no, go for it. No, it's like people only kind of now are rediscovering Barry Lyndon. I mean, right. like, listen, we can say this about a lot of Kubrick stuff. He's a little ahead of the curve. I mean, yeah. some of his movies are literally ahead of the curve. I mean, The Shining won a fucking Razzie. That movie was yeah. critically <laughs> reviled. Yeah. And yeah. then 10 years later, everybody's like, dude, you ever see The Shining? That movie rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. Um, but yeah, no. So that's probably I, you know, probably say has a big contributing factor to like why it's like a, the forgotten one because so many. It's one of these examples where I think maybe I feel, and, and I'm not saying this like to be like a slam or anything. I probably feel like you felt a little bit with 2001. Like I just like I don't even really know where to start. Like it's there's so many different aspects. There's so much. There's actually so much to talk about that I don't know what to talk about. <laughs> Just kind of going on, like, so I guess just like Kubrick in general, right? And the carryovers, and like, another thing, thinking about like uh, him 2001 in it with this, uh, and just how like something bleeds in from you know one movie into the next. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so you know, in 2001, you had the, you know, the dark screen with that ominous, creepy ass music playing, right? Then it starts off in Clockwork Orange, it starts off, you know, the bright, you know, like reddish orange screen, and then it goes into the Queen's funeral song, right? And so this one. It doesn't start off with any, uh, you know, uh, solid color and going into the song, but it does start with the Sarambada, which has a similar cadence to the Queen of Mary song, kind of like a, you know, like droning thing, and it goes out through the whole thing. So it's very like similar to like, you know, Clockwork Orange when you well, it's used cadence, you know, and just kind of Barry like, Lyndon. Like, Barry Lyndon could very have well been a droog. That's all I'm saying. It, I, he definitely could have. Like if you look at yeah. the book, more the book Barry Lyndon. He's more like anarchistic, like yeah. sociopathic. Here, you just don't know. 
I do think the Barry Lyndon of the movie is slightly different because there is a point in the movie where he actually becomes mildly sympathetic. Whereas in the book, he's a bastard all the way to the end. You're like, you get what you deserve, buddy. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But there's but a I, melancholy in the last like I, hour of Barry Lyndon. What the film, though, like and what we know of, you know, Redmond Barry to the progression of it, you know, like what like at that point was that when he was really going to try to you know be a gentleman or was it more of the fact that he wanted uh because remember like if oh, he's always scheming he's scheming he's trying to get back with back into that social circle where he gets like shut down by that person at the restaurant he's like yeah. oh I, I have blah, blah blah so is he actually trying to be a gentleman do the noble thing or is he trying to make no, amends he's a, with this he's a I mean, phony he's a phony he's a schemer I mean, the whole sequence, like the second half of the movie is probably like really the meat of the narrative. Like be- him becoming Barry Lyndon, it takes a long time to get there, but it's actually pretty simple. Um, beautiful, beautiful, a beautiful 90 minutes, everyone. A hot, beautiful 90 minutes. You could watch Barry Lyndon over two nights. It's like a Netflix show. Because uh, it really does have like hard demarcation points where it's like this is the end of the first part, this is the beginning. There's literally title cards, and it actually works in an episodic fashion. But uh, he's always scheming. So once he's like gets married to um, Lady Linden, Honoria, Honoria, whatever I don't know however you pronounce that. They call her Lady Linden in the movie, so I don't, I don't fucking. Um, <laughs> feels right. But like he, when he realizes that like I will not inherit this wealth. And this is in the movie, too. The narrator talks about this in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the third-person narrator makes mention of this. He's like, oh, we got to start peerage. I got to spend all this fucking money and basically get property and artwork and all this stuff. Because if she dies, I won't have anything if I don't actually own these things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so he does that. He totally does that in the movie. So what motivates him wanting to get back into polite society after he has that public fight with uh, Lord Bullingdon uh, is 100% that he's worried about that. Cause it's like joining somebody described it. I read something and it was like, somebody described it as like, he's kind of made like a devil's bargain with the mafia almost, but they're like the polite society mafia, the like mm-hmm. art collectors and stuff. And he's paying way over what it's worth. Um, but it's kind of worthless if he doesn't have people to barter with, with it. Like yeah. if you, if you can't sell it to because it's like a circle jerk, it's incestuous. Like they all fucking sell these all these things to each other, right? Like, you know, it's like money laundering. They're all paying way over what it's worth, basically just to keep each other rich. Because this is a this is an interesting aspect that's in the book and it's touched on in the movie, but there is like this. I think it's really uh, broadly speaking is about the death of the Victorian era and how all of them are phonies and they're all on their last leg and they're all about to run out of money. And they're trying to maintain this facade and maintain this, these properties and this lifestyle, even though they really don't have it anymore. Right. You know? And there's a lot of, like, so, uh, um, upbringings of that too, with, you know, all these, uh, established people that don't want to pay their debts or has got to, you know, go, you know, fight them essentially for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like just, but on that note though, just since, because it just popped in my brain, Talking about like you know not want to uh, actually shoot his stepson, you know, to try to reclaim that. Um, so you think when uh, he confessed to the barrier um, to where he was supposed, to, he was 
listed by the you know the Prussian army to go ahead and basically rat on him for being a spy, and then just it was my fellow countrymen. So is that like a moment of him because he hasn't because it and because like you said earlier, I'm just getting a little scattered. It's two parts. How did I acquire the you know name and title of you know uh, Lyndon, and then you know falling after it? So we're still in, in that section. So was that like a, a like human aspect of him like really? Um, feeling alone and seeing a countryman and want to risk uh, everything that got him up into that point um, and to confide in this guy or, you know, or did he think that he was going to, that it was another way out? I think he saw it as a way out. Like he read the room. Like he's a sociopath. (laughs) (laughs) Are you you talking about when he's talking to the ice, the eye patch guy? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I just want to make sure we're on the right same page. Yeah, I think he he just found like this guy because that that guy, when it's just one on one with him and and uh, Redmond Barry, he's very like open. He's like he's like this is bullshit. <laughs> like that's he's not he's dropped the facade of the of of like civility, and he kind of mm-hmm. talks to him like a normal person, mm-hmm. and which is funny because he's one of the most dolled up people. He's got the fucking white powder and he's got the fake dimple and the lipstick and the wig. Uh, like in terms of visual representation, but I think that the eye patch actually was a nice touch because it kind of shows you, kind of reveals something about the character a little bit, or like his nature in a metaphorical sense, right? Because he's he's actually not that. Like he's a he's a little bit of a an imposter as well. Yeah, you know? well, quite and literally. It, I mean, while that doesn't mean in the movie that that character actually is that, it's just I think that's what it's Kubrick is sending that to the audience. Like he's giving us this little visual thing that gets in your brain and you don't know why you react to it the way you react to it. But there is this sort of, I like, I kept thinking, like, you know, and I know it's simple and pedantic, but I was like, oh, like a pirate. Like, you don't, like, don't trust a pirate. Or, like, not because you shouldn't trust him, but he is just not who he is presenting himself as a little bit. And I think maybe he finds some sort of kinship in him, so he's, like, willing to be honest with him about, like, what he's doing. I mean, because the guy obviously goes along with it. Well, he obviously does, right? But it was still like a pretty gamble, and that's kind of like the thing. Well, you know, no pun intended, because that was quite literally his profession and where they went around. And he found out, you know, his future uh, endeavors with Lady Linda in the future. But like, uh, but that's actually like, much more pronounced. Based off of like, you know, like you know, luck and gambling, calculating bets, and then uh, yeah. I think Roman Barry like getting the uh, the intel on him from the the Prussian officers from the Ministry of uh, Police, being like. You know, you know, he's a scoundrel. He likes, uh, you know, a woman, fine dining, blah, blah. blah. He speaks mm-hmm. French and German. We believe, we believe he's an Irish piece of shit, just like you. And that's why you are perfect to go, go in there and rat on him. And so he's just reading the room and just like really trusting this intel from you know, the Prussians. And be like, you know, um, well, I know they're good because they called me out, my bullshit. And in the book, how he gets discovered by the Prussian officers is hilarious as he's talking about it and he's still in, in reflection. Still doesn't really talk about how dumb he was. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, but he's like, oh, well, they caught me. And so they're probably onto him. So this probably is his whole thing. And he's just probably thinking, like, man, this is me in the future. And maybe we'll get some, you know, I started thinking about, you know, like Irish luck, <laughs> the luck well, of the no, Irish. I, no, I think, I honestly think, you know, the original title of the story is The Luck of Barry Lyndon, which is the ironic Irish luck. Because when people talk about Irish luck, they literally mean, like, oh, that's bad luck. Right, because that's the the turn of phrase, the luck of the Irish, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's because Irish yeah. people got fucked. 
listen, my people, I'm waiting for my reparations. Like, my people have been trodden. My name is Sean Patrick Deegan, okay, everybody? This, this guy's name is Paul Miller. He's going to claim Irish blood or whatever he's got in there. But my name is Irish, okay? So I fall under the oppression of the Irish people, okay? That has historically taken place. I have historical yeah. signs in my house. Irish need not apply. So when you listen to this podcast, you remember that. Remember that. So if you haven't hit the like or subscribe, and you have also haven't made a reparation to one Sean Patrick Deegan, then uh, you know that's the least you can do. That's the least yeah. you can do, people. Yeah, hey some of them. You know, Whatever. I have to done a report, Sean. So do you have a dental report? No, I do. Fuck off. I don't need one, buddy. I'm disgusted. I, but, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. Some days you look kind of Italian and it's kind of gross. So, but I, yeah, but like the, I got this Irish potato face. So like there's really no getting around it. You know, there's no getting around. People know. Totally, totally the dreamy eyes, dude. Totally dreamy eyes. So back to dolled up being private, like I think that was like the most like interesting like uh, like plight he made like to me like uh, through the film and it also made me think about how um, there's always like you know emphasis on dueling. In fact, like he, he created a duel for the movie that was in the book. We we'll talk about that later, but yeah, just talking about you know the chances and fate and uh, you know and uh, oh, and it's definitely there's there's determinism. Really? Well, but, but what you find out though, right? Especially in the book. And well, and in the movie, because the the book only has like you know it has two two major duels, but like in the in the book and in the movie, like the first duel is rigged. Like so, there is the sense of like it isn't actually fatalism. It's not actually fate. There's always something behind. It's always I think kind of the subtext and the point of the book and even in the movie sometimes is a little bit about choices. Like you create your own fate. Like you're not actually fated to be anything you just think you are and that's what gives you the kind of the arrogance to do what you're doing but really you're making the decisions and that ends up being kind of barry linden's downfall is that he doesn't take into account the fact that like i make decisions that either benefit me or don't benefit me he's just like no he's just like so narcissistic or so sociopathic he's like just all about himself until his son is born well i guess with his son it's a little different but because there's also, which is an interesting thing, there's a lot of stuff about fathers and sons and and uh, the types of men they become when the, they're in their lives or not in their lives. Um, yeah, well, even with Barriere, like, uh, there's a sense of, you know, wanting, like, you know, his, you know, like, he wants a father figure. Right. He does, he's always looking at there. So whether it was a, a Captain Brockton or the one that was with John Quinn in the beginning. And then, yeah. Um, no, I know. Who you're t- uh, yeah, I knew. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, he didn't ask for a kiss in the book, uh, but he asked for a kiss in that. So, I, like, that was like a little, um, you know, because there's uh, there's uh, definitely like themes of like homosexuality like, when he steals well, there's literally, well, there's literally. And officers' uniform and like you know there's like two male British officers like in the, in the lake confessing their love for each other. He takes their shit while they were you know um, getting busy uh, in the lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that like with it, so he was both like a father figure, and then you know asked for. I I get that like at that particular scene, like to be that it was like more endearing because I, well, I don't it, know maybe that it could be in there because I mean that's this that is the theme of Kubrick's work, uh, and I'm not saying like I mean there is something about like uh, hierarchies and abuse and traumas, like you know, but I'm not saying that's in Barry Lyndon necessarily. I think the trauma is kind of the uh, 
generational like you know like trauma and stuff like well, that. Well, this so is they, the thing, like Barry Lyndon's father dying sets Barry Lyndon's life in a certain direction. Right. Just the fact that he's raised by his mother, who ends up kind of being weird and conniving. <laughs> and in the book, she's like she in the book she's she he very much is her son. Like she is uh she wants to kind of keep up appearances. Like all everything that happens later in the book and in the movie is kind of set up once you know a little bit more about uh, Mother Linden, whatever you want to call her, Barry Linden's yeah. mom. Like she, he kind of um, mo- models her behavior. Yeah. Uh, it's more so. It's more apparent if you've read the book, because in the in the beginning of the book, it is very like there's the first twenty five pages are just about her, yeah. how she how she decided to keep up appearances. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Uh, but just the same thing with that, and like you know, uh, stepson, you know, his father, he lost his father, and then he's got a weird, um, yeah, uh, more uh, so than you know, Redmond Barry himself, a little, little, uh, but what's that complex? It calls like Oedipus, though, the, the, where you got yeah, a central, the, you know, the Oedipal, com- the Oedipal complex. Like, I think in the movie, it almost plays like, um, Lady Linden's his stepson is like gay, like a gay kid, like an awkward foppish gay kid who can't get Barry Lyndon's approval. They don't want actually approval from each other. There's this adversarial relationship uh, that Barry Lyndon could probably fix, but he doesn't because Barry Lyndon doesn't actually care. Until the end. Until it's too late. <laughs> that's, that's the, to me, that is the major, that's the major difference between the book and the movie with Barry Lyndon. Barry Lind- once Barry Lyndon's son dies in the movie, he is becomes a much more sympathetic character. In the book, he doesn't. No. But in the movie, they because we talked, we you mentioned it. There's a second duel in the movie that is invented. That's just in the movie between Lord Bullingdon, who's grown up, and Barry Lyndon, which is a great scene where Barry Lyndon's like become a wastrel. He's like deeps in the depths of his despair because his son has died. They're posed like an 18th century painting. They're all drunk and fucked up. And uh, <laughs> the satisfaction stuff. I come for my satisfaction. And they go in the barn and they have a duel. That's great. Like, I am not satisfied. <laughs> Ooh, that guy, actually, that actor, Leon Vitale, uh, became mm-hmm. Kubrick's personal assistant. If you, anybody's interested, there's a documentary about him and how yeah. Kubrick ruined his life called Film Worker. <laughs> It's kind of a depressing documentary because he dedicated and still to this day has dedicated himself to Stanley Kubrick. It's a little, it's like obsessive. Like he stopped being an actor to just work for Stanley Kubrick behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, there's a 39 minute long video on Amazon Prime called Fanboy where a guy just really wants to work with Sam Raimi. I forgot to text you that. Is it really? Oh, wow. I got to check that out. Yeah, well, Leon yeah, Vitale yeah. did it for real, Paul. He did it for like 20 South years. Kid, uh, that works at a film store. It goes on a quest to meet Sam Raimi. It's 39 minutes long. That sounds like serial killer material. That's what that sounds like. Sam Raimi's in it. He's in it. He's definitely in it. But that, yeah, that was, uh, that seemed totally uh, made up, made up for that. And it just kind of expected, because like what, in the book, uh, he goes off uh, to fight war in America, right? Yeah. And then, and Redmond Barry just like wants him to go. Hopefully, that little fucker dies. Like exactly. No, I mean there is a turn in the, like, 
I will say this, and this is kind of unkubrick like. He lets he gives like this. He lets go of that nihilism a little bit, that pessimism of the perspective of what's going on with all these people. And uh, he allows Barry Lyndon to act heroically. I don't think it was heroically. We, okay. All right. So th- everybody, everybody at home, they're, at, they're having the duel. They flip a coin to see who's going to shoot first, which I love this, this like examining this aspect of society when people just literally stand squarely and fucking point guns at each other. But yeah, anyway, the plays into the fate thing, right? Because because of such a slow, drawn out process that Kubrick did, like leading up to this, like it was painful, like you're like overwhelmed with the anxiety waiting for this to happen. Oh, which it, I would argue the, that was the beauty of it, right? It's one of the that best was, um where I'm saying that, like absolutely throws it in retrospect, it's in your face about you know the concept of fate. You know, like we're flipping a coin. We fair are enough. going to oh, fair enough, up. yeah. Rolled out there that may or may not go in a straight, you know, um, uh, in a straight path, like to get you. So, but. yeah, no, but it's not fate, Paul, because they flip the coin. The kid goes first. He misfires his gun. Barry then chooses what he does, and Barry shoots at the fucking floor. That's a complete repudiation of the idea that this is about fate, because Barry in that moment has the choice. If it was fate, like it plays into fate. When he so misfires the gun, no, he plays no, into that notion. Being like to end up like where he ends ends up, right? So I, all I, all I'm doing is just oh, there's definitely there's a circle. Oh, yeah, there's no, a yeah, what's a cyclical what's nature. What oh, to shoot at the at the floor because we know like his intentions. What are his intentions? Well, we were uh, talking about earlier that he wants to try to make right in to the society, make an uh, amends with that because. What yeah, but, he, that's, uh, but this is like, okay, so this is what I'm talking about, the difference between the novel and the movie. Because in the movie, when his son dies, which is what presupposes the Lord Bullingdon coming back and asking for satisfaction in the duel, that is a different, I think that is a life-changing thing for this version of Barry Lyndon, for this character. This is where I think most specifically the book and the movie part ways. I mean, listen, maybe it's because I'm a dad or whatever. Children in peril, awful thing for me. Uh, but that scene, that bedside scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, that was that was an intense scene for me. And I love, like, Kubrick has the, the patience as a filmmaker to just play it on uh, Ryan O'Neill's face. Just with, like, these very slow zoom-in. Like, his world is collapsing on him. Like, it's like a really intense scene for me. It was for me, especially because I, I kind of invested in the movie. I invested in the pace and the tone of the movie. And you're not used to seeing something that intense in that movie or presented that way, right? right. So I, I do think there, I, for me, I think that is like a demarcation. It's a place where the movie character and the book character become like different people. That's how I felt. Me, Maybe that's my personal projection. Or I'm just reading it that way. Because when I when he shot at the floor, he doesn't think that Lord Bullingdon is going to shoot him. He thinks he's defused the situation. So I think maybe it goes back to the luck of the Irish concept, the ironic right. luck of the Irish. Like but leading up to it, right? Kid wins his coin toss, you know. And prior to that, you know, he's dry heaving or maybe he actually puked on the side. He's gone, he doesn't even know how to like He's obviously never really fired a pistol before mm-hmm. up until this. Story. 
but he has his own like hubris, his whole upbringing, and like you know, a very like privileged. Well, I'm going to I demand satisfaction. I might what, what listen. This? Listen, I, I might fucking vomit if I had to square one on one a dude ten paces apart, just shoot at each other. I might vomit too. So, uh, so and then you know, just missing do the absolute. Uh, nerves and shaking and just completely like missing the target being Redmond Barry. And then it's just saying like, okay, I'm going to make him like, uh, he'll be relieved. I'll just do this. He'll get over it because I've been yeah. whipping his ass entire life and he's a little pussy and he'll do that. And then when he turned around and said, I am not satisfied. That's when he was like, fuck. <laughs> dude, that was, dude, it is one of the funniest parts of the movie. I was yeah. like, I laughed out loud because <laughs> I forgot. I forgot what the fuck happened, and that scene's not in the book, so I didn't know it was gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he says when he when he turns to him, he's like, "No," and he does it like such a little bitch, like such a little pussy. It makes it even funnier. Like he's so he's so oh, right. equipped for the situation he's in, and he got like a chance and fucked it up, and then was given kind of mercy, and then still just like this this uh this like entitled asshole. Because he's not that much better than Redmond Barry, asshole. Granted, not saying he was treated well, so maybe that's Lyndon Barry's or Barry Lyndon's fault. Because he didn't, he wasn't a good father to him, and this is what happens when you don't have good fathers, everybody. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, it did. I was, I laughed pretty loud. Foster was like, you know, looking at me. He's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm laughing at this movie, guy." You someday get ready. <laughs> Yeah, but how about like when he shoots somebody, you just see it in his face, like oh, oh like overwhelmed with oh, I did it, I did the thing, I did yeah. it. Yeah, he's like, oh, daddy, ah, uh. <laughs> you, I got you. <laughs> Maybe he gave him basically a pension to get out and never return because yeah. because he did that shot and let him finally you know get his revenge. I don't know, I don't know. Well, this yeah, the funny know. thing about the alimony and it's. Because there is this kind of like subtext, probably more so in the movie than in the book. But it, like I was talking about, it was about parentage and about fathers and sons and lineage and legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like at the end of the movie, one of the final shots of the movie is somebody signing an alimony check to Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. And when she does that, uh, Marissa Berenson, who was just actually a, like she was a model. That's what she doesn't have very, she barely talks in the movie, but she's very haunting, very effective. Um, but there's like this little moment where she thinks about him. Little moment. Oh, yeah. Like, you don't, well, like, he's, he, 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 since, like, uh, when, um, you know, she, he's banging the maid, he's doing all this, he's running around, and she became, you know, very stoic and stuff like that. And so uh, the first time you actually see type some type of emotions right before she signs off the check, like, Okay, and then she goes on there. So that that was interesting. The love was real. Redmond love... Barry was a lot. One of the things he was was a pipe setter. He wrote it down. <laughs> I love that in the movie because it's not in the book or whatever. But when he's a uh, when he's with like one of the servants and he's kissing her in the garden, and there's a baby, obviously implying that he's like fathering illegitimate children out there. And uh, and when he sees her, when she catches him. And he just like looks at her like, my bad. <laughs> His face is like, whoops. 
kind of face that 1975 Patrick O'Neill can pull off, right? But uh, dude, Ryan O'Neill was great in this movie. I thought he was he was, was a that? great. I thought Ryan O'Neill was great as Barry Lyndon. He was. He was great. You know, I'm not even that familiar with him, like as an actor. He did like a love story, Paper Moon, What's Up Doc. Like I have never seen any of these movies. Me, the cineast. I've never even seen most of his work. Well, I just did the Amazon thing where I clicked on his face and then it just showed me his whole uh, his whole movie. Well, he is in a, actually, which is a good movie, and I would recommend it to you, is The uh, the Driver from 1978 by Walter Hill. The guy who directed The Warriors. Have you ever seen The Warriors? Mm-hmm. You've never seen The Warriors? No, man. Oh, Cracker, we got to do that. Warriors. Yeah, write down The Warriors, dude. Yeah, that would be a fun one to do. Um, That's like a fun 80s sci-fi gang movie if gangs took over like new york city it's actually a pretty good movie um i'm sorry no you're good you're good i want like this is good stuff actually you know we're gonna take a let's pause for a second here uh in early december do you want to watch citizen kane and then watch David Fincher's new movie, Mank, about the making of Citizen Kane, that will be on Netflix on December 4th. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes, I do. Okay. Yes, right. I do. I need, I need somebody to ride with me hard. I will get you. I will fucking I'll buy you a copy if you don't have it. <laughs> oh, you still got the, the my old DVD? Yeah. Yeah. Booyah kasha. Booyah kasha. Booyah kasha. Oh yeah, I got that. I got the. Uh, I got I mean, the somewhere I got the Blu-ray somewhere over there. Okay, because I was gonna say is it would be kind of disgusting to watch it on DVD in 2020, but I'll allow it. But because uh, that movie is beautiful, but like that, that's gonna be a great episode. Everybody, look forward. Sean, it's up there for posterity. I can't have a bookshelf just filled with books like a fucking loser. Well, dude, people so. will think you're a classy person. Like people will not know that I bought that when I was 18 and gave it to you. Like they won't yeah. know that. They just think you're culture. They're like, holy shit, this guy must have got this when he was a teenager. Look at this fucking guy. He's got a DVD of a fucking Citizen Kane. This guy's serious business. Yeah. Yeah, I know about it. I know about it. I am about it. But that sounds great, though. Yeah, I'm totally down for that. Yeah, because I, I just uh, watched most of it uh, again recently. Did you really? Yeah, I was just on TV. I was going yeah, through like Hulu. I was spoiler, like, spoiler alert, everybody! I fucking love Citizen Kane. <laughs> but uh, Citizen, like, it is that movie was like a hundred years ahead of its time. It's I every time I watch that movie, I just get wrapped up in it. I don't know. I think it's so well made. Save it for December, Sean. I will. Save I'll it save it. I'll save it. But that's a little preview for you. So you got the Warriors, maybe. You got Citizen Kane and Mank, the new Fincher flick. Yeah. Come on. Come on, everybody. Come on. Like, subscribe. Fanboy about Orson Welles. Oh, man. Dude, I could, I could talk about Orson Welles for literally 10 hours. I mean, we could just go through his filmography. What do you got? What are you doing right now? Let's go. No, I'm just joking. Um, well, dude, I have an entire bottle still, almost an entire bottle. Now, no, maybe, maybe, maybe you know what we'll do? 
We'll do a little like a, a dad night. We'll do like an impromptu live stream and we'll literally just talk about Orson Welles movies. Like so next year, at some point, let's watch as many Orson Welles movies as we can and then just have a night where we go for like five hours and get as drunk as possible. Bowsing it. <laughs> just get fucking hammered talking about Orson Welles. And then by the end, we'll be like just like Orson Welles at the end of his life recording pee commercials and he can't remember the words. Oh, fucking grapes. Like he did a wine commercial in France. Have you ever seen that? Uh, Have you ever seen the, the outtakes of that? No, we uh, we watched there was some there's something we watched years ago about like you know everything he uh, like did or like uh, I remember seeing a clip. I remember seeing a clip of that. Yeah, he's he's just like hammered in France trying to make a commercial about like a cheap wine. Yeah. Is, <laughs> And every takes like, oh, fucking grapes. <laughs> and he's so, it's it's like sad, but it's also very on on brand for him. But um, anyways, back to back to the master. Actually, you know, I looked up. You know, I looked up what's what Orson Welles said about Stanley Kubrick because Orson Welles mm-hmm. very outspoken about his contemporaries, very outspoken. Mm-hmm. And at this time, Lolita was about to come out. So he hadn't even really started. Like, what right. we know is Kubrick, right? No no Dr. Strangelove, no 2001, when he makes these comments. And he's like, he's like that guy, I'm not paraphrasing here, he's like, that guy is a master. He just hasn't made his masterpiece. He's like, you can just tell. Because wow. some, somebody was arguing with him, he's like, yeah, but isn't the killing, which is one of Kubrick's first features, is the killing, well, his second feature, and uh, he's like, isn't it kind of like a ripoff of this other movie, this other like French movie, this European heist movie? He's like, yeah, it is, but the killing's the better version of it. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, and that was what he said in like 1958 or whatever. He was just like, yeah, because there are books and books and books, and I own several of them myself that are just like interviews with Orson Welles. He'd like to get drunk and have lunch with people, and he would just talk to you. <laughs> Pretty much anybody that would buy Orson Welles lunch and give him a bottle, a couple of bottles of wine, he'd talk to you. Yeah. So there's a lot of that material out there. And he talked about all of his contemporaries, probably for worse. Because sometimes you'd be like, I don't like that guy. He's not good. <laughs> He's a charlatan. He's a fucking bum. But, uh, a fucking bum. I would love to hear like what Orson Welles thought about like Dr. Strangelove or 2001 or... I don't think he ever commented on Kubrick after that, uh, but I imagine Orson Welles probably because Orson Welles is like a pioneer in the same way Stanley Kubrick is a pioneer. He changed the language. I mean, these guys are nobody before them did what they did. You know what I mean? Like even when it comes to like Barry Lyndon, Orson Welles. No, Orson Citizen Kane is what like nineteen thirty eight. Is that what it is? <laughs> um, Huge TV. Citizen Kane fan over here. <laughs> 1941. 1941. Apologies, everyone. Um, but uh, yeah, like these guys are pioneers. These guys are trailblazers. Like nobody did the things that they did with the medium before they did it. So it's right. cool to see like him recognize that even at such a young age when like Kubrick's like making a kind of a cheapy heist movie in The Killing, which is a good movie. But it's not like what what he did after that. Like as soon as he gets, as soon as Kubrick cuts his teeth, he does Lolita, which Lolita's a 
interesting movie. I'll say that. <laughs> it's an interesting movie. Yeah, I know you struggled through the book, and then oh, the mm-hmm. book is the book is so different. Yeah, but I needed to read the book to understand why Kubrick, uh, why he decided to adapt that material. Like mm-hmm. I needed to know, and it's very in theme with the things that he did later in his work. Okay. I didn't, and I didn't know that because he the things he changes. And if you ever want to go watch the movie Lolita, you let me know. I don't know if you'd ever want to read the book. The book is a tough read. It's a tough read. It is about. Yeah. It's an unreliable narrator, kind of in the same way that like uh, Barry Lyndon is. But he he is a straight up pedophile. Yeah, you don't know what's real and what's not real, but like it is, uh, it's not like tasteless, but it is gratuitous at, at points. And that yeah. made me like, I was like, I don't, I don't want to fucking read this. I don't want to read this anymore. <laughs> I felt bad as a human, like my soul hurt. I was like, I don't want to read this. I don't want to read somebody rationalize to me why they want to fuck a twelve year old like. <laughs> I think I think I'll pass. I'll think I'll pass. The movie, though, I mean, we can still talk. The book, the book versus the movie. So, do you think? Because I take the book. The book was a wild ride. The book was an adventure, uh, adventure ride, uh, and you get, you really get the opportunity to hate um, Redmond Barry a lot more than you do in the film. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's really entertaining. I mean, minus like some of the, like the slow parts. But I mean, come on, everybody. Not every book is going to be like a page turner. Every no, I, well, the, the book feels much more like, a, in a weird way, like an adventure novel. Right. It was like a like a it's like swashbuckling shit. Right. It was like an Irish epic, and then like a, and Kubrick with and like and it was just a Kubrick story, but with the framework, you know, a high level framework from you know the work um, of Barry Lyndon. So. Um, <laughs> Well, this is the thing. Like, I don't like, you know, Barry Lyndon. I feel like when I watched the movie this time, right? Because I watched it once and then I watched like particular scenes over for this. I took a bunch of notes, which I haven't even looked at. (laughs) But like, um, I felt like really under equipped to really discuss it because I was like, uh, there's obviously things here I am not taking in on my first viewing. Like, clearly, like, I pulled so much out of the other things that I've seen a billion times. And it's not just me. Like I, you know, like it's like I think as we've been doing this, like you find the validation for your crazy thoughts. Like it's out there. Somebody else has already put it down and kind of helped you make sense of it. Even you know, even Daddy Ager, even Rob Ager, does not have a ton to say about Barry Lyndon. No kidding. Yeah, I was like, you bastard. Yeah. About the crazy thoughts, right? Because we usually do like a bit about uh, uh, Kubrickisms, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And it's a little bit like the transit, like the old nods from you know one movie to the next, or not. But look back to the same um, theme song of uh, the Serenade that you know it's played throughout uh, throughout the film. Uh, I looked in uh, to that a little bit, and you know just this uh, Spanish um, Spanish piece of music, and then you know what's going on in the world of Redmond Bear at that time, you know, the Seven Year War, uh, which did a huge impact on the, the Spanish uh, Empire, mm-hmm. and uh, with that type of music was actually banned uh in spain for just being like too travel too provocative and like a very uh renowned uh, jesuit priest by uh, juan de morani said hang on i wrote this down because I, I like i like the quiet and i and knowing that kubrick was such a freak that he must have he must have known you know like um like the context of that theme song for that time uh, no exactly 
Exactly, one hundred percent. Type of music, the Sambrano is very popular in that time period of what was on it. But uh, uh, Father Mariana said, "It's a dance, it's a dance and song so loose, its words are so ugly in its emotions that it's enough to incite bad emotions in even every very decent people." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So like uh, which it has it has that meta quality that you look for in a Kubrick movie because he's working on these different layers just like when we talked about Doctor Strangelove, the ants like the ants go marching in song, and then you look at the etymology of that song, you find out like oh, this actually works, for a way that I ever would have assumed, and Kubrick doesn't give a fuck if you know, because it no, works it just cool. works on a superficial aesthetic level like you're like I like that that fits this. What's going on? Doesn't fit. Does not work as well as ZZ Top, but yeah, I saw that. By the way, <laughs> Superbox yeah. Station. Sean Craig put a great piece where uh, Reverend Barry is meeting Lady Linden for the first time. He's putting that freaking, he's putting those sweet eyes, those sweet eyes on her across the table, not saying a word, and yeah. he's got ZZ Top's well-dressed man played in the background because <laughs> like, if you read the book. Everything that, like, it, like even through the film, he spends a all the money, even at times in his life where he doesn't have money to spend on the sweetest threads. That but that's that's what I thought it was very thematically appropriate. I was like, it popped in my head, Paul. I was watching the movie and it popped in my head. I'm like, oh shit, that's funny as fuck. It might be just funny to me, <laughs> but like I thought that was like, I was like. Yeah, and then I was going to edit something together and be clever and be like, oh, you know, I'll go look for some footage from the movie. And then I just, there's a better version. The best version is on YouTube because I, I cut out all the lyrics. It's just like the solo portion. And, uh, and I got it to match a lot of like when like the eye lines would move where the, mute, the song would do what it's going to mm-hmm. do. So anyways, go check that out on uh, YouTube.com slash Zoobox. <laughs> If you want to see Barry Lyndon except scored by ZZ Top, <laughs> yeah, it's just knowing that that song, you know, at the time by you know proper people, you know, or uh, prestigious people in this case, you know, a famous a writer who was a Jesuit priest condemned this song. The song was uh, that type of music was actually banned in uh, in Spain, which was you know, really? the, uh, the, it was the superpower, you know, at that time, you know, during the Civil War and like a. And that they use that type of music that where our, uh, you know, our, our main character is, you know, a scoundrel. And every time that theme is played through there, it's always like some moment where he did, he got into some shady, you know, like it's more shady shit throughout there. So I just thought, I'm like, just like, oh, God, fucking Kubrick, man. It's another Kubrickism. He did it again. He did it again. <laughs> and just looking into the history of that no, but, song. But that's what I'm saying. Like, and we've talked about this every single time we've done a Kubrick movie. There will always be some sort of flight of fancy or weird strand that you can look into and it'll actually add up to something. To me, that's fucking crazy. That's some crazy fucking next level super genius shit, you know? Honestly, yeah. like seriously, because you're just like, he's literally encoding all of this weird shit in these movies and you don't know. That's why I'm talking about. Like you watch it once, you watch it twice. You're like, I don't, how do you even fucking go here? Like without a guide. <laughs> I think this will be something like uh, like a month or two or just like a little bit, not too much longer, but like, like you watch it again. Um, like uh, it, there's you, something else will pop back out at you, uh, well, especially also, dude, you get really lost 
the cinematography of everything uh, in this, and that's part of the point, I think. But it's it's just a, uh, it's it's really good. But but at the same time, it's like <clears throat> it's like listening to a Tool or a Radiohead. You gotta be in the zone. You gotta be in the moment. You gotta be you gotta be right in there. Uh, or actually, fuck both those bands. Uh, King Lizard, the Lizard Gizzard. Um, there you go. There you uh, go. Now you yeah. want to get out there, King Lizard, the Lizard Gizzard. Everybody, go that's check that a, out. That's uh, you know, that, that's rock. a journey. So, um, you need to shut your fucking mouth right there. <laughs> Some dad rock. No, I, I, I just, I laugh because uh, Paul's actually like very much into music in the same way that I'm into movies. So we complement each other in that way when we have these conversations. But like, Paul one time was uh, recommended a band to somebody, a barista. And he was told that his dad rock. <laughs> it was a Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, wasn't it? Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. I was told this kid. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> oh, and, yeah, yeah, bro. It's just, it just a bit dad rock. You know, man? <laughs> a little dad rock for me. <laughs> what an asshole. Yeah. Yeah, just you're a dad rock, though. But, like, everyone thinks, like, I'm like, just the guy wearing a goddamn fish t-shirt like here yeah, go go holy fuck shit i know especially if you're wearing a fish t-shirt like you have no business talking about dad rock that's like that you know what a fish t-shirt is that's and, deadbeat that's deadbeat dad rock that's what yeah. a fucking fish t-shirt but to his credit but to his credit probably didn't know it was uh, a band it was probably time <laughs> he's and, probably and just he, some nice christian boy who thought he was wearing you know, you know it's crazy too like experience so like you know the liquor store that i frequent a lot you know, where I got this, you know, sweet bottle of wine, man. Like, I go there, and there's this, um, there's this girl, probably, like, in her late 20s. Um, she had, like, a tattoo, like, 1975. Like, uh, just 1975. Also, when this film was released, eh, how about that? But a uh, tattoo, like, on her wrist. I'm just looking at that. I'm like, it was like, 1975. I'm like, you know, I'm like, uh, I'm like, what's that about? Uh, what's that year mean? You know, which actually, in hindsight, you know, that could have been a bad that she could have thrown, but Paul's the fucking Paul's that tattoo creep. He's like, you know, he's well, like I, what's I, your tattoo I, mean, well, young lady? I'm the, I'm the observant person. I always, I always, I always ask. I always ask. I'm a curious bird. I'm a curious bird. Right? So I, like, oh, that's my favorite band. I'm like, really? Yeah. And I'm just thinking, like, on the Is drive it, back. It's not. It, it's called 1975. And like I was just thinking, like, yeah, that's uh, band. I was just like, wow, wow. And I just meet somebody and like, I'm passionate about a band. They get tattooed on, you know, the their wrist. I'm like, all right, let me go check. Don't do it. It's some is, stupid British. Oh, I was gonna say, is it death from above? No, no. Is death is death from above. Death from. What is the name? Now they only go as death from above. Is it 1975? Yeah, yeah, 1979. Okay, no. I was like, I was wondering, is it a reference to that? Wow. It's a band called 1975. From wow. Yeah. Listen, I've liked a lot of bands. I like. I there's a band in particular I really, really love. I really, really love Queens of the Stone Age. Never mm-hmm. have I really seriously ever considered getting their name tattooed on my body. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's um. Uh... Yeah, that, that, in, a, in a lot of ways, uh, this is a very Barry Lyndon moment for Paul. You know, like at the end of the story, like you know, he kind of finds himself disconnected from. I'm sorry, I'm trying to connect things. 
trying to, but since you're talking about it, I'm going to talk about how disconnected I am about you know, some other music, right? So I saw something, uh, your wife actually, she actually uh, posted Don't something trust about. Her. Don't trust her. She's, no. she's, she's, Antifa, she's Antifa adjacent. That's why I like talking to her sometimes more than you because she'll talk baseball and football. I mean, you know, I don't know. Be what, like, because she's be part a... of Antifa? Mm-hmm. What would, I, I don't know that. I'm not sure about the Antifa part. No, I, said, I, I, th- I said she's Antifa adjacent. Something called like WAP. I'm like, what the hell is all this WAP? And then I started seeing on Twitter. I'm like, what the fuck is this WAP thing? Then I got to find out that it's on, uh, there's this like rapper or whatever named Cardi B. Cardi and then B. I had to Google, like, okay, well, WAP. All right, what is it? Wet ass pussy. I'm like, all right, great. Wow. So I, I, I just, uh, it was my old band moment of the week, or of the month, really. I'm just looking at my, like, what the fuck? Is-? I don't know. That's not, that not a good journey. You know, Paul, I did. I made a funny video with the song "Womp." If you ever want to check it out, really, it's a uh, Cardi B interviews Joe Biden, and then Ben Shapiro had done a reading, an analysis of WAP on his show. So somebody auto tuned <laughs> Ben Shapiro to the song, <laughs> and I play the underneath the parts of the interview. <laughs> little little self promotion for you people that don't uh, watch the YouTube channel. There's lots of goofs and gaffs over there, guys. I'm I'm live streaming. I think next week we're going to be doing uh, we're going to be doing an election special. Paul might show up. Big Paul might show up. Maybe. Um, maybe. A- after that, I'm going to be doing a live stream. I'm going to be live streaming and drinking while watching the Bjork stalker documentary, which is a bunch of footage of this guy slowly losing his mind and becoming obsessed with Bjork until he kills himself when he thinks he sends her a bomb in the mail. <laughs> That's you got that to look forward to on old zoo box. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds amazing. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be my most epic hot, hot reacts ever. <laughs> My most epic hot reacts ever. Anyways, Barry Lyndon. <laughs> film mm-hmm. about proper attitudes, about the people and lifestyles of 18th century uh, nobility, but the rich. Uh, some of the uh, interesting kind of like production details, though. This is, you know how much money this movie cost, Paul? You know what the budget of this movie was? $10 million. $11 million. What the fuck happened in cinema production shit? You can make this movie with $11 million? This fucking movie. Imagine trying to make Barry Lyndon and fucking any time in the 2010s or now with $11 million. That's yeah. fucking insane. To me, well, I was, it, that was like when I heard had, it. And it and ballooned had, up. It ballooned up. Uh, it was supposed special, to be like $8 million. Uh, to actually, you know, do this for the candlelight it seems they it's a lot of the spent there on the equipment and then to get those uh old ships they had which was only for like a 30 second scene to yeah. get a, like one little scene just for a couple seconds when they reference the seven-year war like you know that's expensive like to get that out there you know and um yeah then all the uniforms on it's just it was well, crazy, crazy a, lot of the stuff, they, a lot of the costumes were actually from the period they were antiques um, a lot of the places they filmed were all, obviously they were like kind of like 
historically restored buildings and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the scene when a uh, when a Barry Lyndon's son is dying and he's telling him the story about the Seven Year War while he's crying, uh, there was a bunch of uh, monkeys in the other room <laughs> acting a fool because there was in a zoo. That's a that was a zoo at the time. And so Stanley Kubrick thought it would be a cool idea. He's like, hey, what if I buy them a bunch of bananas? They'll, sh- they'll chill out. So they give them a bunch of bananas. And then what happens is the monkeys, because they're monkeys, they eat too many bananas and start vomiting and shitting diarrhea and making... like that's You could hear it on the microphone, apparently. <laughs> um... <laughs> It took two years for them to film this movie. They did it over a two-year period. Oh, wow. Imagine dedicating your life to this for two fucking years. Yeah. Uh, well, because, like, the, the big project you was supposed to do, like, uh, I remember reading somewhere that he recycled a lot of research he was doing for a Napoleon film he wanted to do and mm-hmm. kind of use it uh, use it for this, too. But, yeah, that, that, yeah, the that is... The Napoleon movie was supposed to star Jack Nicholson as Napoleon. Oh, that actually, man. Would have been fucking rad as fuck. 1970s Jack. Oh, my God. As Napoleon? Napoleon? Fuck, man. Savages wouldn't let Stanley Kubrick make his movie. He was also supposed to make a movie that's, and then Steven Spielberg kind of like, uh, kind of fucked him. He was going to make a movie called The Aryan Papers about the Holocaust. and, And then Spielberg made Schindler's List like out from underneath him. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Stanley Kubrick actually was friends with Kub- was Stanley Kubrick was friends with Spielberg, but uh, and the only when he was asked about how he felt about Schindler's List, the only thing he had to say was that uh, he's like the Holocaust was about losing, Schindler's List is about winning, because Schindler's List the big victory at the end of the movie is that he saves like a hundred people. Mm-hmm. That's the big victory of that movie. And but in reality, from Stanley Kubrick's perspective, classic Kubrick pessimism, classic Kubrick like kind of perspective, he was just like, "No, you're supposed to feel sad at the end of a, a Holocaust movie." <laughs> yeah. That's the only thing yeah. he said because he was friends with Kub- with uh, Spielberg, so I don't think he wanted to insult him. Yeah, I like I like Schindler's List, by the way. I'm not saying I don't. It's a very well made movie. It's a very sad movie. It's a very emotionally manipulative movie. Um, not in a bad way. I'm just saying in a way that, like, it is like very Hollywood, yeah. like like most of Spielberg stuff. To be honest with you, um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of the the story of Stanley Kubrick's life is that he'd like work really hard on something, then somebody would make something too much like it, and he'd be like, "Fuck!" I mean, like, yeah. Platoon comes out the same year Full Metal Jacket comes out. Who do you think was working on what movie first? <laughs> you know (laughs) and then one of them ends up being this academy award-winning crowd pleaser and if anybody would like to know paul and i actually reviewed platoon we did a did a ghost of the movies about platoon we'll be doing one about full metal jacket sometime in the nearish future is that the next kubrick film yeah yeah, because we already did The Shining. The Shining would have come after this, but then, but we already did The Shining. So it's going to be Full Metal Jacket and then uh, Eyes Wide Shut. We could go back to Paths of Glory if you'd like, because I think you'd like Paths of Glory. Um, 
we'll figure that out on our channel. Yeah. Yeah, no. I, honestly, I I want you to watch Lolita. You don't need to read the book. But if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it for real. I'll tell you what. Do it for real. I'll tell you what. Paths of Glory, then Lolita, and then we'll do Full Metal Jacket. Kaboom! I got you, man. I got you. I think you're, I think you're really gonna like Paths of Glory. Uh, well, uh, Kirk Douglas, man. Like, why the fuck not? Kirk Douglas. Are we going to do Spartacus, man? Are we going to do that? Do you want to do Spartacus? I own Spartacus. <laughs> I I just remember watching it. From it's, the fake, uh, it's the fake. It's the fake. It's the fake Kubrick movie that he did as a jobber, but it's a Kubrick movie. It, Maybe it is. Kubrick. I did. I don't know. I, I watched all I think about is that uh that institution we went to when we were kids. So yeah. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. All right, maybe we'll maybe and our, uh, and our buddy Corey think, oh yeah, no, look, that guy actually died. He actually no, it's wicked. He died. He died in that chariot seat. Let's rewind it. <laughs> like, but, right. pulls out fact, I, don't, no, I don't want to do Spartacus. I don't want to do Spartacus. If we do Spartacus, it'll be later. It'll be not part of the official Kubrick Boys series, which this will be put into a playlist of official Kubrick Boys episodes. Just so you know. And so I'll be spilling it. Always talking, it's always going to be the case when you got a book uh, and then the film adaption, you're going to have two different experiences, right? And good or bad. And like this is just yeah, classic Kubrick. He had, uh, which was also like complete contrast from Clockwork Orange, where he basically said to it with, you know, omitting chapter 21, but what we talked about in the chat. And the Clockwork Orange video is that Chapter 21 was worthless anyway, so it was fine. But he basically kept to um, kept to the book, like in virtually everything mm-hmm. up until that point, the first 20 chapters. And this one, you know, he, he really good, but you kind of get a lot of themes, or you know, which I think we kind of contrast a little bit about, you know, like what it was about. But it's still a different experience. I think uh, in this case, um, uh, I enjoyed reading the book more than watching the film. And every case with Kubrick up to this point, I've enjoyed the movie more than the book. Um, and I think uh, that this should be revisited in like a, like a series format. And I think that would be awesome. I don't know, like for the, even if it was for the period or like, you know, a modern adaptation of it, because it, it was bonkers, man. Just like the whole thing with like, uh, like him going like uh, faking being crazy in the hospital to escape and just like, like all like, like HBO should be going over this. Try to make this like a, a no, series. It could be good. Like I said uh, before, like it is. It feels like a swashbuckling adventure. The book yeah. does right. Yeah. The movie is like distills the principles of the book. So the book has a message. It wants to send people a subtext, and the movie's like, well, let's just deal with the subtext. Because it is a pretty, like, I think it hits the major beats of the story in terms of, like, what you need to understand the story. I do think it is similar enough where I did feel like it felt of the spirit of the novel. Mm-hmm. I felt it was of the spirit of the novel. But I thought the most interesting thing to me is where he chooses to focus his attention. Kubrick. Yeah. And I think that, like, he found a humanity in, uh, in Barry Lyndon. Redmond Barry, whatever you want to call him, uh, that is not in the book. He's a much more of a caricature in the book. He is a piece of satire in himself. And then when you learn a little bit about the author, uh, William Makepeace Thackeray, 
you find out that's kind of what he did. He skewered people like, like he wanted to skewer that lifestyle. So he uses uh, Redmond Barry slash Barry Lyndon as an avatar to skewer that lifestyle, to kind of expose it a little bit. So yeah. par- he's a satirist. So that's where you got to start. He's a satirist. And I think maybe Kubrick maybe picked up on that, but he grounds it, though. He grounded it in a way that a book is not going to. And a right. book, like it is an abstraction, it's a little bit of a fairy tale. So in a movie, he has to show that world. He has to show it. And he didn't want to make it cartoony. So what he did was he like he grounded it in a lot of like reality, historical context, in the way that the book doesn't. Um, and I think that's most of that's just visual. Like just having to adapt that book and represent it on the screen, you're you're gonna have to be much more literal about it. Like you, you can't make a fucking <clears throat> what is it? Men in tights. You ever see Men in tights? Uh, yeah. Robin Hood Men in tights. You ever see that movie? Yeah. Okay, that's a period piece done like an overt satire. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's a, it's a goofy version of that time period. And he decides like, "Oh no, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm going to I'm going to present you like a the reality. I'm going to let you kind of find the absurdity in some what they're doing without drawing your attention to it." Like I like the book. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I do think the movie is actually much more thoughtful and smarter about the principles of the book and what the book is actually trying to like imbue to an audience. The book is like a funner time. Yeah, it is. It really is. <clears throat> the movie, but the movie is like, it's pretentious, but in like a meta way, like in the sense that like Stanley Kubrick knows that he's making a pretentious movie because these people are pretentious. He he wants you to feel the pretension of the of the people that he's talking about. Another like meta way, it's pretentious, and then you're pretentious for like watching it if you pick like pick up on it, right? Because like we're talking about like the Nat Geo documentary aspect of it, right? Yeah. You know, we're observing this, you know, like you know, barbaric culture trying to be like. Well, that's yeah, that's the thing. Like there's there is that separation. What's that? I said there is that separation, right? Because like he's giving you the reality, he's grounding it, but then there's that fucking narrator, <laughs> and the narrator's like, and now the ape will try to succeed. Mm-hmm. Now the ape will be going to. He married uh, Miss Linden and trying to take her estates, and but he had a notion that maybe he should try to look out for himself. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a Richard Richard Attenborough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Like, I ha- I need to watch this movie five more times before I really can know what I'm talking about because there is this these weird layers and parallels where it all works. Because I think the movie works. I think the movie works. Like, I don't, especially at the end, like the the, the final card for Barry Lyndon. I want to get it right. Oh, the epilogue? Epilogue card, yeah. I just want the epilogue, please. Thank you. So the final, the epilogue of the movie is, it was in the reign of George III that the aforesaid personages lived and quarreled, good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. Because 
everybody fucking dies. So anything that you yep. achieve in life, all of these lofty ambitions you have, uh, you're the president, you're the guy that working at McDonald's, doesn't matter. At some point, we are all equals. We will all be dead. We are all wearing food. And uh, <laughs> it was such an interesting way to, I think, kind of stick it to, uh, I think, be almost on Barry Lyndon's side. It's almost on Barry Lyndon's side in that sense. He's like, you guys, I tried to be you. You put me down, but it doesn't matter. Like, we're fucking, we're fucking the same because we're all dead now. It doesn't matter anymore. But maybe that's me projecting. I don't know. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. But uh, it still doesn't change the fact that it was a, it was a, it was a beautiful film. And uh, I, I do think uh, at the end of the day, we are getting the same conclusion from the book and uh, and the film. It's just uh, the approach is a different way. And I think uh, that uh, the men in tights analogy about you know, if he was trying to be literal, now he did what Kubrick did, uh, what he always has done like uh, in these films. Just uh, it just kind of went his own uh, narrative with it. And so that I appreciate. I think uh, the big point I was just making usually with uh, like the book versus movie when I, uh, I tend to enjoy the Kubrick experience more. Yeah. Uh, in this particular case, I enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's a great movie and I think I'll appreciate it more if I watch it again in the future. But I think in this particular case, I enjoyed the, uh, the book more than uh, the adaptation. Yeah. I think on a visceral, just like, just like upfront level, I think the book is more, more entertaining. 100 percent uh but i do think the movie has things to be discovered i'll say i'll say that um for myself uh i it's like i give kubrick the benefit of the doubt and that's not to say that like i didn't like the movie or i didn't think it worked or whatever i do i think it works i think it's a and like i said earlier like i think it's a technical masterpiece i think it i think in it like some of those scenes are so fucking good like some of the scenes are better than anything in the book. Like the fucking the final duel to go back to that is such a fucking well constructed on a technical level sequence. Like you are there. You're there, especially ha- being a person that read the book, it was nice to be given something I didn't know where it was going to go. Like I was mm-hmm. like, oh, what the fuck's going to happen here?" Uh, and it really, to me, it changes the character. I know we kind of talked about that a little bit, but I do think it changed. I think Kubrick had a different kind of. Well, I think the principle of the notion of like what they are trying to accomplish, I think it is faithful to the novel, it's faithful to the book. The ending message is faithful, but I do think I like that Kubrick added this layer of empathy for uh, for Barry Lyndon that is not in the book. Uh, Barry Lyndon is a bastard in the book. He's never right. somebody you're going to have empathy for. It's funny to watch. It's like it's kind of like President Trump, right? <laughs> like we like it when he does good things. We like it when he does things that we we enjoy, and uh, and he makes us laugh. Like you know, like I I'm speaking for myself. Nobody else. That's a funny. That's a funny dude. Like you should fucking admit that. Like it's a funny guy. Uh, but you're not always going to like what comes with that. And I think, uh, and Kubrick kind of underlines that a little bit, like under underlines this notion of, uh, of humanity in a monster. If you want, if you'll say, if you will, 
Like there is a le- there is an actual person underneath all of this bullshit that we put off to people and we try to achieve, we try to accomplish. There's a person underneath that. And I think the movie actually tries to expose that whereas the book is not doesn't have any interest in that. The book is just like, "Oh no, he is who you thought he was." The extra layer of complexity I thought was interesting in the in the movie. Yeah. But but is that wild though? Because then he had uh, like his previous work with Clockwork Orange, where he did have that growth, or like something where you should like you're like oh he actually evolved, and then obviously knew about it at the time of filming, but just said man fuck that let's omit that. And this one he went out of his way to you know add that into uh, his adaptation. You know mm-hmm. so that's yeah. He records that's what I'm saying. Like he adds that because that is the most human thing that. Um, Larry, Barry Lyndon does to me I know you read it differently but to me the duel changes that character changes that character on such a fundamental level at that point in the story like choosing not to just shoot that fucking kid <laughs> and maybe he should have but he chooses not to he literally he chooses not to and he thinks that like and he hopes that'll satisfy him like it's a very desperate it's a very merciful and desperate moment because it's the first time he's ever acted like a father. To him, yeah, by not yeah. killing him. No, yeah. seriously, but that's but that's how deep it is. Like that's the first time he's ever been a real parent to him. He sh- he's mm-hmm. teaching him this lesson of mercy, but he didn't actually teach it to him because Lord Bullingdon is like, no, <laughs> we're not done. Oh fuck you. Because he wasn't a good father, and that's kind of like the lesson to it in me. Like the scene when he walks into the recital. So there's a scene where Lord Bullingdon, um, Lady Lyndon, and Barry Lyndon's son, natural son are walking into the recital that Lady Lyndon's giving. And uh, the son is wearing uh, Lord Bullingdon's shoes. And there's, there's a few instances instances in the movie where they mention like are you walking in my shoes mm-hmm. it's at this point like kind of lord bullington understands he's like oh you want him to be me but if she dies this is mine right and he's telling barry Lyndon that yeah it's like that's kubrick i mean that's kubrick because that's like such a subtle weird thing you could just read it superficially you could be like oh well he's just making a rude appearance he's being awkward trying to showboat that pisses yeah. Barry Lyndon off but there is well, actually a deeper thematic I, level I wrote, uh, read, uh, ah, excuse me I invoke such a violent reaction to that because that was like a very deep cut a very deep cut that I gave him in a very public manner knowing um, you know the status and you know um, you know, looks and you know, um, just everything in that society appearance is everything, and you just shattered that on like several different levels, which mm-hmm. really evoked like, the breakout of like character and break out of that thing and just be the Irish rogue that he is to you know violently whoop the shit out of him again because apparently he did it wrong all those years. So, I don't know. listen, he should have beat that kid better. That's all we're saying. That's all we're saying. Mm-hmm. Should have beat know. that kid better. <laughs> Products of getting the shit whooped out of us, and uh, well, you know, 
Maybe that's for another podcast. Maybe, maybe it's not a great idea. Maybe it doesn't actually matter. <laughs> well, it's like it's like weird, like you know, being a child of that, and then having younger siblings because we're both the oldest of quote unquote larger families. Um, to be slightly personal, it's just like you see the effects of like, okay, this happened to me. That didn't happen to you, but we're kind of still the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the skullduggery. The skullduggery, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I it, think that's I think that's be, probably going to do it. Usually, I apologize. I usually do that a little bit. And I do it more for myself by, like, what's going on at the time that it comes out. But 1975, there wasn't a whole lot going on. So I just let's talk about what happened in, uh, with NASA. <laughs> As we do with Kubrick. So it was the last Apollo Soyuz test project, uh, orbital launch on December 27th. Failed probably, but we got a lot of uh, a lot of great pictures of Mars from that. So no oh, did we though? Did we always though? Talk about NASA. Did we though? Mars doesn't exist, Paul. Shit. I don't know. I'm sure there's a Reddit page that says that. I have no idea. <laughs> all right everybody thank you so much uh we i've had fun talking about barry linden barry linden is a tough nut to crack i think maybe we'll probably re- revisit this in a couple of years honestly um because it is the most unfamiliar i am with any of his movies and i do feel a little bit at a deficit to really even reading the book and watching the movie i'm still like how do i even approach this and I hope we at least did an entertaining job. That's about all I can hope for with Barry Linda. <laughs> right. It's so hard. It's hard. It's hard to get into the rich thematic material only watching it once. It really is because you know that Kubrick has things in there. You know he has it in there. Like it's in well, there. It's so rich with all the paintings on the wall too. I'm sure somebody did heavy lifting out there somewhere no, about it. No, but like some of those paintings are literally they're they are shots in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like he's aware of that. There's this chore, this this choreographing. There's this this kind of subtext there that I have yet to discover myself, and uh, and I look forward to doing it in the future. So hopefully, just like uh, every Kubrick movie, you know, we'll revisit it in the future. Whether it's Zubox goes to the movies, whether it's you know Chapaliday the podcast, whatever it's going to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll probably talk about it again. Yeah. We'll probably talk about it again. You, right now, young man, you're listening to this. Because 90% of our audience are men. I looked yesterday. <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll hear this. Listen. Listen. We'll talk about it again, okay? Listen, I'm not going to be your father. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm very tired. <laughs> this is a joke. The joke. Linden, it's it's for the birds and it ends in tragedy. So, you know, just just don't do it. Don't be just Barry don't Linden. Do don't don't be Barry Linden. Don't be a fatalist. Um, you know, make decisions for yourself. You know, be a Sarah Connor, you know, feminism. Hey, be a Sarah Connor. Make your own fate. Do it. Do like do I it. said, like I said when this podcast started, uh 46%. Anyways, <laughs> I'll be 
I'll be, we'll be talking to you so, folks soon. What are you talking about? Uh, this is coming out Monday, so we'll be talking to you tomorrow. Okay? Big Paul might even be there. We'll be drunk. We'll be talking about things we shouldn't talk about. Anyways, good night, everybody. Have a, have a, have a safe Christmas. <laughs> have a safe Easter. Have the best time ever. I love you. <laughs> you gonna top that, asshole? I, I, oh no, no, because this this shit's getting deleted. So <laughs> you think so? I'm a suffer. I like it.